Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research... She feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Listener, this episode contains homophobic slurs quoted from the mouths of bigots. I waffled for a few days on whether I should include them or not. But listening back to the episode with beeps, I feel that censoring the episode would take away from Matthew's story. That said, I understand if you feel like skipping this episode. Despite what some will tell you, words have power, and I don't want to affect your mental health in a negative way. Now, let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Listener, it's not typical for our stories to start off with a math lesson. Statistics in particular aren't always the most engaging way to grab people's attention. But in the context of today's story, they're an essential basis for truth. Appropriately setting the scene without verging on hyperbole. The FBI defines hate crimes as any criminal offense against a person or property motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias against a race, religion, disability, ethnic origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity. 
of the 50 state-based jurisdictions in the United States, 45 have laws that criminalize hate crimes, but only 30 of these include sexual orientation, while only 17 are inclusive of both sexual orientation and gender identity. Members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer or questioning community are overrepresented in statistics worldwide when it comes to being victims of crime, and specifically, hate crimes. Gay men are more than three times as likely to report incidents of hate-driven violence to law enforcement compared to straight men. According to the Human Rights Campaign, it is still legal in 27 U.S. states for LGBTQ people to be fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity. The American Bar Association notes that according to the FBI, in 1996, sexual orientation was a factor in 11.6% of the almost 9,000 hate crimes recorded in that year. In 2017, 17% of reported hate crimes targeted the LGBTQ community, and the figure is steadily rising. As recently as November 2019, NBC News reported on the FBI's latest hate crime statistics report. What it revealed is sobering. Both 2017 and 2018 represented historically high levels of reported hate crimes. Of the 7,128 crimes reported in 2018, more than 1,300, or nearly 19%, were motivated by anti-LGBTQ sentiment. That's a jump of 8% since 1996 which for a minority group is significant. The LGBTQ community in the United States is estimated to be 4.5% of the population. Yet according to the FBI, they represent 18.5% of hate crime victims. Of these victims and survivors, gay men were overwhelmingly the target. So it's not hard to see that members of the LGBTQ community are being targeted more frequently and more seriously, not less. When it comes to the law enforcement agencies nationwide who participated in the FBI's recent hate crime statistic program, only 12% reported any incidents of hate crime. No hate crimes were reported in Alabama or Wyoming. Wyoming is among five U.S. states that still have no hate crime laws. It is also one of four states that have refused to provide legislative protection for the LGBTQ community. When the New York Times originally reported on today's story at the time it happened, it drew a chilling figurative comparison between the crime itself and rural American custom. Known as coyote hanging, the practice involves nailing a dead coyote to a ranch fence to ward off other coyotes in the area who will see their lifeless counterparts strung up as a gruesome warning. Starting during the mid-1900s, the custom was also regarded as proof of kill to ranchers who like to show off coyotes that have been killed on their ranches by specific hunters who received a bounty for their efforts. So what does rural American folklore have to do with hate crime statistics and the LGBTQ community? Perhaps you already know this story, or think you do. But as you'll hear, what happened just outside a town in the Midwest state of Wyoming on a chilly fall night in the late 1990s had haunting parallels with coyote hanging. What started as a grisly warning would become the catalyst for a watershed movement nationwide, one that would see the LGBTQ community finally make a breakthrough when it came to breaking down bigotry and prejudice. Now, let's get on with it.
Part 1. Gem City of the Plains. The vast state of Wyoming is traditionally known as a socially and politically conservative state. With its population of around 500,000 people residing mostly in small towns. In 1869, it became known as the Equality State, being the first to grant women the right to vote. Wyoming also led the way with further progressive legislative changes focused on equal rights. It was the first state to grant women the right to own property and hold office, electing the nation's first female governor in 1924. In the southeast corner of the state, on the plains of the Laramie River Valley, lies the city of Laramie. Situated on an elevation of 7,200 feet, the city is nestled between mountain ranges and in close proximity to 2.9 million acres of nearby national forest. The Medicine Bow Mountains to the west of Laramie intersect with the Snowy Range Scenic Byway, As you drive to the outskirts of what is also known as Wyoming's hometown, prairies extend as far as the eye can see. Since its inception as a tent city in the mid-1860s, the settlement of Laramie quickly expanded into one of Wyoming's most prominent railroad and industrial towns. In 1862, the Overland Stage Line started stopping in Laramie, which in 1868 eventually became the western terminus of the Union Pacific Railroad. As the number of railroad jobs in Laramie declined from the mid-1950s onwards, the University of Wyoming, which was founded in 1886, became the largest employer in the city. Part of what also now gives Laramie its name as a college town is the university's designation, as a National College of Athletics Association Division I sports program, Laramie is said to be the most liberal town in the state, and its population of around 30,000 is also said to be one of the state's most diverse. Up until the 1990s, Laramie really wasn't known for anything too remarkable in terms of events that were nationally newsworthy. But all this would change in 1998 when the town's name would become forever synonymous with an event so shocking that it shook the town and its reputation to its very core. Part 2. I Am Matthew Shepard was born on December 1st, 1976, in Casper, Wyoming, to his parents, Dennis and Judy, to whom he would forever be known as Matt. Five years later, Matthew's younger brother, Logan, arrived to complete the family. The shepherds were Episcopalian, and Matthew went on to become an acolyte at the family's local church. Even though Judy felt her sons were total opposites in many ways, Matthew and Logan were close growing up. As a youngster, Matthew had a stuffed toy rabbit named Oscar, that he took everywhere with him. He always enjoyed spending time outdoors, and especially in the mountains, going camping and fishing with his family. He was especially close to his paternal grandfather, who taught Matthew how to hunt, ride horses, cook over an open fire, and drive a truck during family camping trips with his father and brother. 
Matthew attended Crest Hill Elementary School, followed by Dean Morgan Junior High School. During his early school years, he developed a passion for the theater and performing. He joined a local community theater group and was on stage in many of the local community college performances. For the first two years of high school, Matthew attended Natrona County High School, where he was a friendly kid to all who knew him. But being shorter than his peers and not naturally gifted at sports, saw him quickly become the target of bullies. Matthew struggled at times with attention deficit disorder, but it was clear that he had developed a strong sense of social justice from a young age. At both high schools he attended, Matthew's classmates elected him to be a peer counselor. This was no surprise, as Matthew made friends easily, and his peers found him easy to talk to. His father Dennis described Matthew as an optimistic and accepting young man who had a special gift of relating to almost everyone. He was a type of person who was very approachable and always looked to new challenges. Matthew had a great passion for equality and always stood up for the acceptance of people's differences. The 2013 documentary, Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine, by Michelle Husway reveals that it wasn't until high school that Matthew came out to his guidance counselor as gay. Even though Matthew was comfortable in who he was, his high school friends don't recall him formally coming out to them. Matthew's mother, Judy, recalls that she first thought her oldest son might be gay when he was around 8 years old. Matthew's favorite Halloween costume was Dolly Parton, and as a youngster, he often liked to dress up as the country star. This outfit alternated with a Superman cape that was also a favorite. Years later, in a handwritten list found amongst Matthew's belongings, he described the many facets of his personality. I am funny, sometimes forgetful, and messy and lazy. I am not a lazy person, though. I am giving and understanding, informal and polite. I am sensitive, I am honest, I am sincere, I am not a pest. I am my own person. I am warm. I love helping. I love smiling. I love being myself. I love learning. I love eating. I love airports. I love hugs. In 1993, Dennis Shepard started working for Saudi Aramco, the national oil and natural gas company of Saudi Arabia. The new role saw Dennis and Judy put the family's belongings into storage and relocate to Duran in the east of the country. Matthew, who had just finished his sophomore year, also left the United States with his brother Logan. But as there was no international high school in Saudi Arabia, Matthew instead went to live in Switzerland, where he attended the American School, a private boarding school for international students. Matthew continued to pursue his passion for the theater and also studied German and Italian. His desire to connect with others soon saw him develop a large and diverse group of friends, so it was no surprise when he was voted friendliest in his class. Studying abroad was a fantastic opportunity for Matthew to see and experience things he wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to during his high school years. This included school trips to destinations like Germany, Italy, and Japan. But in 1995, an unexpected and traumatic incident would sully the experience. During a trip to Morocco in North Africa with some high school friends, Matthew was accosted by a gang of local men who violently robbed, beat, and raped him in an alleyway. The psychological and emotional impact was long-lasting, 
with Matthew thereafter experiencing reoccurring bouts of depression and paranoia, as well as anxiety attacks. To his family and friends, gone was Matthew who had previously had an air of confidence and was energized through his interactions with others. In his place was the shell of a person his friend Michelle described as broken. Throughout Matthew's high school years, he had developed a strong interest in politics and current affairs. When he returned to the United States after graduating in 1995, he spent his freshman year of college in Salisbury, North Carolina, but also spent some time there receiving treatment for depression. Like many gay teens who wrestle with the issue of whether to come out to their families, Matthew was terrified his parents would reject him and didn't come out to them until after he'd started college. Judy and Dennis loved their son no matter what, made it clear to Matthew that he had their full support. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Judy described Matthew around this time as being a snappy dresser and good dancer who liked country and techno music. Feeling restless, Matthew decided to relocate west to Denver, Colorado, where he would stay for the next year. During this time, Matthew continued to struggle with depression. Memories of the attack in Morocco and feeling untethered from the world around him. But he also found a close-knit group of lifelong friends who helped him through these dark times. Failing to feel settled in Denver, Matthew eventually decided to return to his home state, checking himself into a hospital in Laramie in the summer of 1998. His close friends and family were relieved and felt that this was a new opportunity for him to settle somewhere familiar. He enrolled at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, majoring in political science and taking a minor in languages. It was also the alma mater of Dennis and Judy, who had met there many years ago. Plans were put into motion for Matthew's younger brother, Logan, to also attend the university when he graduated high school, where he was also hoping to share an apartment with his older brother. The boys had been apart for some time, and this would be a great opportunity for them to reconnect and have quality time together. After Matthew was discharged from the hospital and started attending classes, he made it a priority to become involved in the campus LGBTQ group, expressing an interest in mentoring students. His dreams of becoming a diplomat or human rights advocate appeared to be taking shape. The future was looking promising for Matthew but it was also reported that around this time, a friend of his expressed concern that Matthew was using drugs as a mechanism to cope with his depression. On the evening of October 6, 1998, Matthew attended a meeting of the LGBTQ group in Laramie. The group was looking forward to the upcoming Campus Gay Awareness Week due to commence the following Monday. Earlier that day, he spoke to a family friend and told her that attending the college in Laramie was the greatest decision he'd ever made. When the meeting wrapped up, Matthew wasn't ready to go home and asked his friends to join him in town for a drink. Much to Matthew's disappointment, no one took him up on his offer, but he didn't let this dampen his spirits. Matthew called a ride home from the meeting and then made his way back out later that evening to a bar called the Fireside Lounge. Arriving between 10 to 10.30 p.m., Matthew was said to have been a regular at the bar, where he was often seen alone, but his natural friendliness often saw him striking up conversations with strangers. During the evening, 
two scruffy-looking men were said to have arrived between 11 and 11.45 p.m. But this time frame is based on conflicting reports. The men were seen to approach Matthew and strike up a conversation. Matthew was later seen leaving the bar with the men just after midnight. The following afternoon, local college student was mountain biking along a road on a prairie about a mile east outside of Laramie in Cactus Canyon. Misjudging the terrain, the teen fell off his bike. Getting to his feet and dusting himself back off, he saw in the distance an object that appeared to be positioned near a buck pine fence. Whatever it was, it wasn't moving. And as the cyclist got closer, he thought it may have been a scarecrow. But the cyclist would soon come to a horrifying realization. It wasn't a scarecrow. It was a person. They were tied to the fence. Officer Reggie Flutie of Albany County Sheriff's Department was the first to arrive on the scene. While waiting for paramedics to arrive, her first priority was to perform first aid. All first responders are required to wear protective gloves in such instances. However, the gloves that Officer Flutie had on hand were said to be faulty, but she proceeded anyway. Matthew was laying on his back with his hands tied behind him, near the bottom of a fence pole. He was also unconscious and missing his shoes. Despite later reports to the contrary, Matthew was not found tied to the fence in a crucifixion pose. In an effort to untie him from the fence, Officer Flutie sustained some small cuts on her hands. Matthew's mouth was filled with blood and clamped shut, and in a split-second decision, Officer Flutie realized that if she didn't clear Matthew's airway with her bare hands, he may not survive. In an interview with the BBC, Officer Flutie recalls telling Matthew, Baby boy, I'm here, kiddo. You're going to be okay. Hang in there. Don't give up. Come on. You can do this. It was clear that Matthew had been severely beaten and tortured, and congealed blood had pulled on the ground beneath him. The beating was reported to be so savage that Matthew's body and entire face was caked in dried blood, save for rivulets of tears that had run down his face through the mask of sticky redness. Thanks to numerous lacerations on his head, face, and neck, his right ear was torn away from his head. With the local sheriff later stating that Matthew's injuries resembled those of a high-speed car crash victim, in a final act of depravity, his assailants had tied him to the fence and left him to die. It was a wonder Matthew was alive at all. In addition to his many injuries, overnight temperatures in Wyoming at that time of year plummeted to near freezing, and death from exposure alone was a serious risk. By the time he was rescued, Matthew had been tied to the fence for 18 hours. In her book, The Meaning of Matthew, Judy Shepard recounts that when Officer Flutie first arrived, she realized that Matthew hadn't been alone while he was tied to the fence. Not knowing when or if someone would come to rescue him, Matthew had been kept company by a female deer that nested in the bushes overnight and only ran away as first responders arrived at the scene. Matthew was taken by an ambulance to Ivinson Memorial Hospital in Laramie, but his injuries were so severe that he was soon transferred south of the Wyoming border to the Surgical Neuro ICU at Poudre Valley Hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
where he was immediately placed on life support. Matthew's parents and brother were contacted and rushed to the hospital from Saudi Arabia to be by his side. At first, Judy and Dennis couldn't be sure that the person lying in the bed, unresponsive and beaten to a pulp, was their eldest son. But Matthew had worn braces since he was 13 years old, and when his parents saw this man too had braces, the realization that it was indeed their son was gut-wrenching. Judy later described the scene to the BBC. He had bandages and stitches all over his face and bandages around his head. His fingers and toes were curled in a comatose position already. One of his eyes was partially open, so you could see his blue eyes and the tubes in his mouth. His face was swollen, actually kind of unrecognizable, till you got closer. When hospital testing was performed to assess the extent of Matthew's injuries, the news was dire. In addition to having hypothermia, he had sustained four fractures to the rear and right side of his skull as a result of being savagely pistol-whipped. total of 18 blows had also resulted in bleeding on Matthew's brain, and the severe brain injuries he sustained had crushed his brainstem. In order to relieve the pressure on Matthew's brain, surgeons inserted a drain to release the buildup of spinal fluid. In Michelle Husway's documentary, Dennis Shepard recalled how he attempted to find Matthew's childhood toy rabbit, Oscar, to bring to the hospital, in the vain hope that this would help rouse their son from unconsciousness. But it soon became clear that even if Matthew's body survived the coma, he would never regain consciousness as the person his friends and family knew and loved. In addition to being confronted with the shock and trauma at the sight of Matthew in the hospital, Staff informed Matthew's family the day after he was hospitalized that he had tested positive for HIV. The tests had been run in order to determine whether Matthew's organs could be donated, but at a time when being diagnosed as HIV positive still carried with it a heavy stigma, the news was devastating for Matthew's family. On that same day, Officer Flutie, who was the first person to perform first aid on Matthew without the protection of latex gloves, was informed of Matthew's HIV status. There was a risk that Officer Flutie had been exposed to the virus due to the cuts she sustained to her hands while rendering assistance to Matthew at the scene. She was immediately placed on a regimen of antiretroviral medication and several months later tested negative for HIV. But something else had unfolded in Laramie the same evening that Matthew was seen at the bar. It was a sequence of events which would lead police to quickly link the assault to two local men who had been picked up by the police. The night before Matthew was found, a fight had broken out in town between 22-year-old Aaron McKinney, who was known to the police, his 21-year-old friend Russell Henderson, and two young Hispanic men. Both Aaron and one of the Hispanic men sustained head wounds, with Aaron striking the man in the head with the butt of a gun. When an officer arrived at the scene, Aaron ran into the darkness, but Russell was apprehended by police. In a search of Aaron's pickup truck, the officer found a gun smeared with blood, as well as Matthew's credit card and a pair of shoes that didn't appear to belong to either Aaron or Russell. Russell was later released by police at 3 a.m. and was picked up by his 20-year-old girlfriend, Chastity, and Aaron's 18-year-old girlfriend, Kristen, 
The patent leather shoes that were found in Aaron's pickup were soon identified as belonging to Matthew. Laramie police went on the hunt for Aaron, who was hiding out at home with Kristen. Eventually, police tracked Aaron to the local hospital. He'd been admitted after seeking medical attention for a hairline fracture to his skull that he'd sustained in his altercation with the Hispanic men in the early hours of the previous morning. When asked to account for the presence of Matthew's belongings in the pickup, Aaron and Russell told police that they arrived at the fireside lounge the previous evening to have some drinks when they saw Matthew. The trio got to talking, with Aaron and Russell offering to give Matthew a ride home. Aaron told police that when he and Russell initially saw Matthew at the fireside lounge, they quickly realized he was gay, and figuring he was an easy target, decided to rob him later that evening. Aaron told police that in order to make Matthew feel safe and convince him to accompany the men in the pickup, Aaron pretended to be gay. Russell took the wheel, and the trio drove off. Aaron stated that once inside the truck, the men threatened Matthew, who gave them his wallet. Aaron told police that Matthew then put his hand on Aaron's leg and asked, When are we going to get to where you live? Aaron told police that he responded, Guess what? We're not gay and we're not going to jack you up. Interpreting Matthew's gesture as a sexual advance and apparently fearful of what might happen, Aaron started pistol-whipping Matthew with the butt of his 357 Magnum. Some reports state that Aaron later told the police he said he could turn us on to some cocaine or something, some methamphetamines, one of those two for sex. Aaron and Russell drove Matthew out to the prairie east of Laramie, Matthew struggled as his assailants dragged him out of the pickup, but his attempts to fight back during the attack were futile. Russell tied Matthew to the fence using a length of clothesline, and Aaron continued the assault, beating him unconscious with the gun. Aaron claimed that the assault continued because the men thought Matthew may have seen the license plate number, telling police he was getting the shit kicked out of him. Aaron and Russell eventually took Matthew's shoes and drove back to Laramie. They were headed for Matthew's apartment to see what they could steal, but on the way, they had an altercation with the young Hispanic men and were picked up by the police. It soon became clear to police through conducting their initial inquiries that Aaron, Russell, and their girlfriends thought that Matthew had died at the scene. Aaron's girlfriend, Kristen, initially stated to police that Aaron told her that Matthew made a pass at him at the bar and that his attack on Matthew was a response to how Aaron, quote, felt about gays. When Aaron arrived home at 1.30 a.m. following the attack and the altercation in town with the Hispanic men, he was covered in blood and crying, telling Kristen, I'm pretty sure I've killed a fag. However, she later recanted this statement, telling police on October 8th that she had lied in her original statement in an effort to support Aaron's story adding that she didn't feel it was a hate crime at all. Police searched Aaron's house where they found the blood-stained clothing he'd been wearing less than 48 hours before. Aaron was released from the hospital into police custody, and on the evening of October 8th, both he and Russell were arrested and charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. Years later, when speaking to reporters, Kristen would again change her story saying that Aaron and Russell assaulted Matthew to, quote, teach him a lesson not to come on to straight people. In an attempt to get on the front foot and ensure that Aaron and Russell's accounts remained consistent, 
Aaron smuggled a letter to his accomplice in jail following his arrest, saying, Hey homeboy, when we go to court, if they try us together or separate, they should hear you say what I said. So this is what I told them. Me and you was getting fucked up at the bar, and when we was fixing to leave, Matt asked us for a ride home, so we gave him a ride. When we got out there, he tried to get on me, and I started kicking his ass. At no time did we know he was gay until he tried to get on me when we got out there in the truck. He wanted to get me in a dark place so we could get funky. That's all I got for now. I'm sure I'll think of more later. As Matthew's life hung in the balance in the days following the attack, media coverage of the case reached saturation point. Matthew's sexual orientation took center stage as a motivating factor for the crime, thanks to several of his friends who contacted newspapers and radio and TV news stations. Given that Matthew had only $20 on him at the time of the attack, it was difficult for his friends, families, and LGBTQ activist groups to reconcile the degree of violence and brutality inflicted upon him as simply being attributed to a robbery. Media outlets jumped on the story, quickly reporting on the assault as a gay hate crime. While highly publicized candlelit vigils were held for Matthew across the country, Vanity Fair reported that the weekend after Matthew's attack, the University of Wyoming LGBTQ group marched in honor of their fellow student at the homecoming parade after the college football game. Hundreds of students wore yellow armbands and carried placards emblazoned with the words, No hate in our state. Despite the intense activism and moral support that poured in from all over the country and the globe, Matthew never recovered from the significant head injuries he sustained as a result of the assault. Thankfully, Judy and Dennis didn't have to make a choice about whether to turn off their son's life support. Six days after he had been found tied to the fence on the prairie outside of Laramie, Matthew died just after midnight on October 12, 1988, with his family holding his hands. He had only been living in Laramie for approximately two weeks. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today 
on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. The day following Matthew's death, then-President Bill Clinton gave a press conference where he told reporters, I hope that in the grief of this moment for Matthew Shepard's family and in the shared outrage across America, Americans will once again search their hearts and do what they can to reduce their own fear and anxiety and anger at people who are different. In our shock and grief, one thing must remain clear. Hate and prejudice are not American values. The charges against both Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson were automatically upgraded to the capital crime of first-degree murder. If convicted, both men would be eligible for the death penalty. Additional heartbreak found its way to the Shepard family in early November 1998, when Dennis's father passed away. Matthew and his grandfather had been close and spent a lot of time together during Matthew's childhood, but the stress of losing his grandson in such brutal and sudden circumstances and dealing with the aftermath was too much for the grieving grandfather. Part 3. Snakes in the Grass Aaron McKenney had a criminal history, including a history of both drug use and drug dealing. He was raised by his maternal grandparents after being left with them by his mother at age 5, following his parents' divorce. But it was far from an idyllic upbringing. Aaron's grandparents were said to have often locked him in the basement to keep him out of mischief. From the age of seven, Aaron was sexually abused by a neighbor who forced Aaron to perform oral sex on him. Aaron was said to have a violent temper, which saw him often getting into fights in school. It was no surprise that this behavior affected Aaron's academic performance, which was poor. Aaron first came into contact with the criminal justice system at age 14 when he stole a cash register. Vanity Fair reported that when Aaron's mother died suddenly when he was 16 years old, he dropped out of high school, started working odd jobs, and moved into a trailer with some friends. Aaron received a $100,000 inheritance following his mother's death, but instead of using the money to provide to himself with some financial security, he instead went on a spending spree, purchasing drugs, jewelry, and a car. It wasn't long before the money was gone. His girlfriend Kristen had also dropped out of Laramie High School, and together with their baby son, lived in a rented first-floor apartment in a rough-and-tumble neighborhood. At the time of his arrest for the attack on Matthew, Aaron was awaiting sentencing for theft of $2,500 from a local KFC store. Russell Henderson was reported by the police to be the follower of the two. He deferred to Aaron in all aspects of their friendship. Russell never knew his father. His mother had chronic alcohol dependence and was subject to family violence at the hands of her male partners, as was the young Russell. Vanity Fair reported that at age 10, Russell was placed in the care of his grandparents, who were devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Things appeared to be turning around for Russell, who became an Eagle Scout, but then he met Aaron McKenney. Russell then dropped out of Laramie High School and drifted from job to job. 
His criminal record included convictions for drinking and driving and assaulting a police officer. By October 1998, Russell was living with his girlfriend Chastity in a trailer on the southwestern fringe of Laramie. Like Matthew, Chastity was a freshman at the University of Wyoming, where she was studying art. Russell, Chastity, Aaron, and Kristen socialized often and considered each other as best, best friends. At the time of the attack on Matthew, Aaron and Russell were employed as roofing workers. Aaron's defense attorney later told the BBC that both men were heavy users of crystal meth, which significantly affected their mental health and judgment. Following Matthew's death, Aaron and Russell's girlfriends, Kristen and Chastity, were charged with being accessories after the fact. This carried penalties of up to three years in jail time and $3,000 in fines if the women were convicted. Despite the upgraded charges against the men, neither could be charged with committing a hate crime, as those provisions didn't exist under either Wyoming or federal criminal law when it came to targeting someone based on their sexual orientation. Americans couldn't turn on the TV, radio, or open a newspaper without being confronted with interviews and editorializing about Matthew's case, which by now had reached fever pitch. The question of the gay panic defense in relation to the murder being considered a hate crime was a hotly debated topic across the nation, with many social commentators weighing in to provide an opinion. What happened to Matthew was so horrific that it also made international headlines keeping the town of Laramie in the media spotlight and bringing a level of scrutiny to the case that was clearly not going to dissipate quickly. The media construction of the role of Laramie in the story focused on the two competing, and at times, overly simplistic depictions. On the one hand, Laramie was portrayed as a town where bigotry against the LGBTQ community thrived under the guise of the live-and-let-live culture of whiter, conservative Wyoming. On the other, it was presented as a progressive and liberal town, where something atypical and horrendous had occurred. In this regard, the LGBTQ community, its allies, and associated social justice organizations were all rightfully outraged that yet another member of their community had been brutally attacked and ultimately murdered out of homophobic hatred. Matthew's funeral was an opportunity for his loved ones to come together in their overwhelming grief and celebrate his too short, young life with dignity and respect. But no one anticipated the hatred that awaited the thousand mourners on October 16th as they gathered outside St. Mark's Church in Casper in the heavy snow. Members of the infamously homophobic Westboro Baptist Church turned out in force to picket the funeral bringing signs emblazoned with slogans including Matt is in hell and God hates fags. Law enforcement held such strong concerns for Judy and Dennis's safety that prior to the funeral, bomb detection dogs were taken through the church, which had SWAT teams positioned at the building's exits. On the roofs of the buildings surrounding the church, snipers were positioned to take aim if required. Dennis made a press statement outside the church on the day of the funeral, as Judy stood weeping behind him. Overcome with emotion, Dennis, who was wearing a bulletproof vest as an additional security precaution, told the media assembled in front of the devastated couple, We should try to remember that because Matt's last few minutes of consciousness on earth may have been hell, 
His family and friends want more than ever to say their farewells to him in a peaceful, dignified and loving manner. The shepherds weren't alone in being targeted by homophobic groups, who openly expressed their vitriol at Matthew's funeral. As detailed in Michelle Husway's documentary, the CEO of the hospital where Matthew died was receiving hate mail, with one letter being addressed to the home of, quote, dead faggots. Public rallies were held as Matthew's story gained traction, with public figures speaking out against what had occurred. On October 14th, comedian Ellen DeGeneres was among several celebrities who spoke at a vigil on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, which was attended by an impassioned crowd of 5,000 people. Ellen made an emotional and evocative speech about the impact of Matthew's death. I am so pissed off. I can't stop crying. You know, I, I just, I, I mean, I know we all feel the same way, and I'm, I'm here, and I'm, you know, he's got these two close friends here, and I'm, I don't even know him, and I'm thinking this is just really selfish of me. I mean, what, pull yourself together, and, and it just hit me why I am so devastated by it. It's because this is what I was trying to stop. This is exactly why I did what I did. See him come out in forces when they think a lesbian's going to be on television. The preachers come out then, but you know, something like this happens. Where are they? Anyway, I, you know, everybody has already said everything. You're hearing the same thing over and over again, and I, I really didn't know what I was going to say, and I, um, I just started writing on on the plane and. Uh, you know, thought it was pretty good, and then Anne wrote me what she read, and I was going to throw it away. But um, I wrote it, so I'm going to say it, and I, it is basically the same over and over. But uh, I've been trying to figure out how to put into words what I want to say. My thoughts are that this world we live in today is filled with hate and darkness. Matthew Shepard was not the first hate crime. It happens every day. There are 2,500 reported this year. Many go unreported because most gays and lesbians are still in the closet for fear of this exact reason. When three white men dragged James Burr Jr. behind their truck and killed him just because he was black, I felt the same way. I don't see full-page ads saying, stop the hate, stop the violence. These same evil, idiotic, so-called God-loving people who use the Bible to justify their hate, I'm sure still feel deep down that blacks aren't equal to whites, because the Bible was also used to justify slavery. It took one man, it took one man, one white man, Abraham Lincoln, to free the slaves. He wasn't very popular for doing it, but he knew it was the right thing to do. When Hitler was killing all the Jews, the church was silent. They did nothing. It was a few good Germans who helped hide the Jews. Right now, homosexuals are the target of, at the very least, discrimination, at the very worst, hate and violence. 
So I'm begging heterosexuals to see this as a wake-up call to help us end the hate. Please raise your children with love and non-judgment. Tell them that everyone has the right to love who they want to love. It shouldn't threaten you or who you are. Explain that it's not okay to call someone a faggot or a nigger or a kike. We shouldn't be asked to change who we are. The millions of dollars that the religious right spend on print ads and TV ads could be spent on helping to change the homeless or help change men who abuse women. Matthew Shepard wasn't hurting anyone. He was a good person, a gentle soul who was tortured to death. He's with God now, who I'm sure is crying. My torture goes on every time I think of what those boys did to him, just because he was gay. When will we learn, just because someone's black, just because someone's Jewish, just because someone's gay? This is a war. We need your help. Part 4. Panic or Prejudice At Aaron's pre-trial hearing in November 1998, similar security precautions were in place as they had been at Matthew's funeral. It wasn't just the shepherds that law enforcement was concerned about, with the prosecutor also receiving death threats. Meanwhile, in jail awaiting trial, Aaron McKinney attempted to justify his attack on Matthew by writing a letter to an inmate's wife telling her, Being a very drunk, homophobic, I flipped out, began to pistol whip the fag with my gun. In December 1998, Russell's girlfriend Chastity pled guilty to being an accessory after the fact to first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 15 to 24 months in prison. In late December, the prosecution announced that they would be pursuing the death penalty for both Aaron and Russell. As with Matthew's funeral, members of the Westboro Baptist Church returned to vocally and aggressively picket the proceedings when Russell appeared in court on April 5, 1999, pleading guilty to murder and kidnapping. But Matthew's friends were ready for the hateful protesters. The peaceful protesters in attendance was adorned in white robes, with oversized seven-foot angel wings as part of the activist group, Angel Action. The angels gathered outside court, forming a circle around the church protesters and blocking them from coming near Matthew's parents. Russell's defense team maintained that Matthew's murder was not a hate crime. In a deal that was struck with prosecutors, Russell agreed to testify against Aaron in order to avoid the death penalty, but he later reneged on the deal. Russell was sentenced to two consecutive life terms, with the judge telling him, Quite frankly, the court does not believe you really feel a true sense of remorse for your role in this matter. Meanwhile, the push for hate crime legislation to be formalized forged ahead. Following Matthew's death, then-President Bill Clinton took steps for amendments to be made to federal hate crime legislation already in place. But this would prove to be a long and arduous road. When it came to changes on a state level, on the next sitting of the Wyoming legislature, a bill referencing sexual orientation with regard to hate crimes was introduced to the House of Representatives, but failed to be passed following a 30-30 tie. Aaron McKinney's trial commenced in October 1999. 
The prosecution alleged that in what was a premeditated crime, both Aaron and Russell had pretended to be gay to lure Matthew into accompanying them in the pickup. The prosecution argued that Aaron was motivated to murder Matthew out of greed and violence, and not because he was driven by homophobia. It was alleged that Russell tied Matthew to the fence, with Aaron stealing Matthew's shoes to prevent him from walking back into town. In the event, he managed to free himself. Aaron continued to pistol whip Matthew as Russell watched on, laughing. Aaron finished beating Matthew after asking whether he could read the license plate on the pickup. The court heard that following the attack, both Aaron and Russell made attempts to persuade their girlfriends to provide alibis and asked them to help dispose of the men's bloodied clothes they'd been wearing when they assaulted Matthew, as well as his shoes. Detectives who had interviewed both Aaron and Russell told the court that there was no evidence to support the claim that Matthew had made a sexual advance towards either man. Aaron and Russell both testified that prior to the attack, they obtained Matthew's home address and had planned to rob his house. Aaron's girlfriend, Kristen, told the court that both attackers had led Matthew to believe they were gay in order to get Matthew in the truck and rob him. Both Kristen and Chastity testified that neither of their respective boyfriends was under the influence of alcohol or drugs on the night they attacked Matthew. Aaron's defense team argued that their client's only intention was to rob Matthew and not to injure him. The claim that Aaron's assault on Matthew occurred out of self-defense, in this case the gay panic defense, in response to Matthew making an unwanted sexual advance towards Aaron. It's important to note here that the American Bar Association notes that gay panic is not an affirmative legal defense, but is often relied on as both an explanation and an excuse for an accused person's behavior. Aaron's defense team attempted to make the case that, in response to sexual advances made by Matthew, Aaron became so enraged that he temporarily lost the capacity to understand right from wrong, causing him to violently assault Matthew, but the judge wouldn't hear it. In Wyoming, the gay panic defense is inadmissible, not because it plays on prejudice, but because it's not admissible as a statuary insanity defense. Salon.com reported that with this avenue closed to the defense, they maintain that Matthew wasn't physically attacked in the pickup, only at the fence, and that even then, the attack didn't last any longer than two minutes. In an attempt to discredit the prosecution's claim that Aaron continued to be Matthew after asking whether he could read the license plate, Russell told the court that by that stage, he was back in the pickup and didn't see Aaron continue to be Matthew further. Russell testified that Aaron began assaulting Matthew in the pickup, but that this wasn't necessarily a part of their initial plan as part of the robbery. When the jury returned from their deliberations, Aaron was found guilty of felony murder with robbery, kidnapping, and second-degree murder, but not premeditated murder as originally charged. Nevertheless, there remained the question of whether he would receive the death penalty but before the jury had an opportunity to deliberate, an announcement was made. In an effort to show mercy that wasn't afforded to Matthew, Dennis and Judy Shepard, who had previously been supporters of the death penalty, had struck a deal with the prosecution that would take the ultimate punishment off the table. Prior to Aaron's sentencing on November 4, 1999, Dennis Shepard read a victim impact statement to the court Speaking directly to Aaron McKinney, Dennis said 
It's hard to put into words how much Matt meant to family and friends and how much they meant to him. The spark that he provided to people had to be experienced. He simply made everyone feel better about themselves. Matt loved being with people, helping people, and making others feel good. The hope of a better world, free of harassment and discrimination because a person was different, kept him motivated. All his life, he felt the stabs of discrimination. Because of that, he was sensitive to other people's feelings. Matt trusted people, perhaps too much. Violence was not part of his life until his senior year in high school. He would walk into a fight and try to break it up. He was the perfect negotiator. He could get two people talking to each other again, as no one else could. Matt loved people, and he trusted them. This quality of seeing only good gave him friends around the world. All he wanted was to be accepted as an equal. I loved my son and was proud of him. He was not my gay son. He was my son who happened to be gay. He was a good-looking, intelligent, caring person. There was the usual arguments, and at times, he was a real pain in the butt. Our relationship at times was strained, but whenever he had a problem, we talked. We were father and son, but we were also friends. My son Matthew did not look like a winner. However, in his all-too-brief life, he proved that he was a winner. My son, a gentle, caring soul, proved that he was as tough as, if not tougher, than anyone I have ever heard of or known. How do I talk about the loss that I feel every time I think about Matt? How can I describe the empty pit in my heart and mind? My life will never be the same. I miss Matt terribly. I think about him all the time. I feel a tremendous sense of guilt. Why wasn't I there when he needed me most? Why didn't I spend more time with him? What can I have done to be a better father and friend? How do I get an answer to those questions now? The only one who can answer them is Matt. Matt officially died in a hospital in Colorado. He actually died on the outskirts of Laramie, tied to a fence when you beat him. You, with your friend, killed my son. By the end of the beating, his body was just trying to survive. You left him out there by himself, but he wasn't alone. There were his lifelong friends with him, friends that he had grown up with. First, he had the beautiful night sky with the same stars and moon that we used to look at through a telescope. Then, he had the daylight and the sun to shine on him one more time, one more cool, wonderful autumn day in Wyoming. His last day alive in Wyoming, and through it all, he was breathing in for the last time the smell of sagebrush and the scent of pine trees from the snowy range. He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for the last time. He had one more friend with him. He had God. I feel better knowing he wasn't alone. Your agreement to life without parole has taken yourself out of the spotlight and out of the public eye. Best of all, you won't be a symbol. No years of publicity... No chance of communication. No nothing. Just a miserable future and a more miserable end. It works for me. My son showed me that he was a lot more courageous than most people, including myself. Matt knew that there were dangers to being gay, but he accepted that and wanted to just get on with his life and his ambition of helping others. 
My son died because of your ignorance and intolerance. I would like nothing better than to see you die. However, this is the time to begin the healing process. I am not doing this because of your family. I am definitely not doing this because of the crass and unwarranted pressures put on by the religious community. If anything, that hardens my resolve to see you die. I'm going to grant you life, as hard as that is for me to do. Because of Matthew, every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, or 4th of July, remember that Matt isn't. Every time that you wake up in that prison cell, remember that you had the opportunity and the ability to stop your actions that night. You robbed me of something very precious, and I will never forgive you for that. I give you life in the memory of one who no longer lives. May you have a long life, and may you thank Matthew every day for it. Matthew's mother, Judy, also made a victim impact statement, part of which read, Matt is no longer with us because two men learned that it was okay to hate. Somehow and somewhere, they received the message that the lives of the others are not as worthy of respect dignity, and honor as the lives of us. They were given the impression that society condones, or is at least indifferent to the violence against the others. For all who ask what they can do for Matt, and all the other victims of hate, my answer is to educate and bring understanding where you see hate and ignorance. Bring light where you see darkness, bring freedom where there is fear, and begin to heal. Aaron, like Russell, received two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. A condition of the deal was that he relinquish all rights to appeal and not speak to the media. Following Aaron's trial, his girlfriend Kristen pled guilty to a lesser charge of misdemeanor interference with a police officer and was sentenced to 180 days in jail. 120 days of Kristen's sentence was considered as credit for time already served and the remaining 60 days were suspended. Part 5. Erasing Hate Following Matthew's death, his mother Judy became a passionate activist, educator, and public speaker, campaigning and lobbying hard for diversity awareness and equality for the LGBTQ community. By the time of Aaron McKinney's trial, Judy and Dennis had already established the Matthew Shepard Foundation on December 1st, 1998, on what would have been their son's 22nd birthday. The foundation aims to promote understanding, compassion, and acceptance, and educate and raise awareness of human rights issues. It also advocates for survivors and victims of hate crime motivated by homophobia and transphobia. Extensive media coverage of the case continued following the trial, and even though it was widely accepted that Matthew's murder was a gay hate crime, debate still swirled about Aaron and Russell's motivation for the attack. In a controversial episode of 2020, which aired in 2004, statements made by high-profile individuals involved with the case became public, expressing the view that Matthew's death was not the result of a gay hate crime. This included the prosecutor who led the state's case against Aaron and Russell, who claimed that the events that led to Matthew's death were not the result of homophobia, but that it was a drug-related robbery gone horribly wrong. One of Aaron's own defense team later stated that he was unaware of any evidence to support such a claim. 
The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation also noted that despite the media previously reporting extensively on Aaron's alleged use of methamphetamines, which was part of his defense strategy, 2020 suggested that this aspect hadn't been previously explored, which was incorrect and misleading. On March 20, 2007, Dennis and Judy Shepard attended a ceremony in the U.S. Congress to hear the introduction of the Matthew Shepard Act as federal bipartisan legislation. Just over six weeks later, the bill passed the House of Representatives, but in a blow for the Shepherds, by this stage the Republican Party were in power, and the likelihood of the bill gaining sufficient support to be passed by then-President George W. Bush was slim to none. Bush had in fact been open about his intention to veto the legislation if it passed the Senate, but it didn't. In the face of strong opposition from Republican supporters, the Democratic Party opted not to pursue the legislation at that time. However, the tide began to turn when then-President Barack Obama came into office. As clear as former President Bush had been about opposing the proposed act, then-President Obama was just as vocal about his support for the bill. In 2009, Judy Shepard wrote a biographical book detailing her memories of Matthew, how things unfolded for the Shepard family following the crime, and their battle in pursuing the implementation of hate crime legislation across the country. In April of that year, the U.S. House of Representatives again debated amending the existing hate crime legislation against the bill passed. It was introduced to the Senate and adopted as an amendment two months later. Finally, in October 2009, just over 11 years after Matthew's murder, the Shepard Bird Act was passed by the United States Congress. The act was named not only in honor of Matthew, but also after 49-year-old James Bird Jr., who was murdered four months before Matthew. James, who was African-American, was killed by three white men in Jasper, Texas. The men beat James, spray-painted his face, and urinated and defecated on him before chaining him to their pickup truck and dragging him for three miles. James was alive and conscious throughout the horrifying ordeal and died when his head and right arm were severed after striking a culvert. When then-President Obama signed the Shepherd Bird Act into law, he told the media, After more than a decade of opposition and delay, we've passed inclusive hate crime legislation to help protect our citizens from violence based on what they look like, who they love, and how they pray or who they are. In 2013, the producer of the 2020 special from 2004 reignited fuel to the speculative fire when he released a book, again, questioning the motivation for Matthew's murder. Among other things, the book claimed that Matthew and Aaron McKinney were not only known to each other, but that Aaron was bisexual and the pair had previously had casual sex together. The book also claimed that Matthew was both a known methamphetamine user and dealer, citing interviews later given by the lead investigator. The book was widely denounced as sensationalist and the backlash was intense, with the BBC reporting that the promotional events for the book release were boycotted. Even police officers who had worked on the case themselves spoke out against the claims made in the book, which have not been substantiated. It is worth noting that Aaron McKinney denies that he met Matthew prior to the night the men were seen at the Fireside Lounge, nor has Aaron ever admitted to being bisexual or having casual sexual encounters with men. Many of Matthew's close friends have been vocal in dismissing the claims that Matthew met up with his killers for drugs or sex, and as noted by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, 
No credible witnesses have been able to publicly substantiate any of the claims made in the book. In response to the many claims made in the book that attempted to reconstruct the narrative as a drug-related robbery between two men who knew each other intimately, the Matthew Shepard Foundation released the following statement. Attempts now to rewrite the story of this hate crime appear to be based on untrustworthy sources, factual errors, rumors and innuendo rather than the actual evidence gathered by law enforcement and presented in a court of law. We do not respond to innuendo, rumor, or conspiracy theories. Instead, we remain committed to honoring Matthew's memory and refuse to be intimidated by those who seek to tarnish it. We owe that to the tens of thousands of donors, activists, volunteers, and allies to the cause of equality who have made our work possible. On October 26, 2018, just over 20 years after Matthew's murder, his ashes were interred in the crypt of Washington National Cathedral. The momentous yet somber occasion marked the first interment of the ashes of a national figure for 50 years. For Judy and Dennis Shepard, knowing their son's remains were now in a secure location where people could publicly pay their respects brought a great deal of comfort. Matthew's legacy was again recognized in June 2019, this time at the Stonewall National Monument in New York City's Stonewall Inn which was the first U.S. national monument dedicated to the equality and the history of the LGBTQ community. Matthew was inducted as one of the American pioneers, trailblazers, and heroes to the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor. In December 2019, on what would have been Matthew's 43rd birthday, a ceremony dedicating a memorial plaque in his honor was held at the Washington National Cathedral. The plaque inscription reads, Matt, Rest gently in this place. You are home safe now. Peace be with you and all who visit here. Today, the Shepherds family and Matthew's friends continue their tireless work with the Matthew Shepherd Foundation. In Judy's capacity as board president, she travels the country and internationally to raise awareness and speak about tolerance, inclusivity, and creating open dialogues with a diverse range of people. Matthew's legacy continues to live on in other ways, inspiring artists from all genres to create works including theater, music, books, a film, and of course, podcasts. And for the sheriff who was the lead investigator on Matthew's case, there has been a profound shift in attitude towards the LGBTQ community. In an interview with the BBC, he said, Prior to this investigation, I was pretty homophobic. I was mean-spirited towards the gay population. I would be the first person that would tell a joke about gay Americans, and the word fag rolled off my tongue very easily. Never caring or even thinking about if somebody standing next to me was gay or struggling with sexual identities. I was a real asshole. When I got involved in the investigation, I was forced to interact with Matthew's friends, many of which were gay and lesbian. A switch went on and I very quickly started to lose my ignorance. In terms of federal anti-hate crime legislation, the Shepherd Bird Act, as it's known, only applies at this time to violent felonies such as murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, kidnapping, or rape. Despite the progress that has been made thanks to the dedicated work of the Shepherd family, the reporting of hate crimes by law enforcement agencies across the U.S. is still not mandatory. We can only hope this will change with time and education. The American Bar Association notes that as of mid-2019, 
Only eight states have passed legislative bans on the use of gay or trans panic as a legal defense. These are California, Illinois, Rhode Island, Nevada, Connecticut, Maine, Hawaii, and New York. Similar legislation is currently being considered in Washington State, New Mexico, Texas, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and the District of Columbia. The only public memorial in Wyoming dedicated to the memory of Matthew Shepard is a sidewalk bench at the University of Wyoming. It describes him as, Beloved son, brother, and friend, he continues to make a difference. Peace be with him and all who sit here. If you'd like to support the valuable ongoing work of the Matthew Shepard Foundation by making a tax-deductible donation, please see the links in the show notes on your app or on our website. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.